Hello listeners, welcome to another episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast which covers the history and stories of DC Comics from the very beginning. I'm your host, Mike Voiles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website devoted to comic books of all types. As regular listeners of the show know, I've always wanted to own and read everything ever published by DC Comics. While my personal collection of comics numbers well over 50,000 issues at this point, I don't yet own every DC comic. However, through the magic of reprints, microfiche, and other means, I do have access to every story they've ever published. That's almost 80 years worth of material. Now that I have all these stories, I'm in the process of reading them all in more or less chronological publication order. That's not just the superhero stuff. That's everything. This is episode 13 of my show, and I still haven't gotten to the debut of the very first superhero, Superman. But his debut is fast approaching. As I continue reading, I plan to provide you, the listeners, with information about the stories, the creators, and the company known as DC Comics. In this episode, I'll be covering stories from the year 1937 and into the early part of 1938, just before Superman's debut in Action Comics number 1. Entering the year, the company, which was known as National Allied and owned by Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, was publishing just two titles, More Fun and New Comics. Late in 1936, Nicholson partnered with Harry Donenfield and Jack Leibowitz to form Detective Comics Incorporated. Their first publication, Detective Comics, saw print in 1937, cover dated March. The initials DC are actually derived from Detective Comics. Although most people today think of all three of these titles as published by a single company, the fact is that at this point Nicholson retained sole control of more fun and new comics, his partners shared control of Detective Comics with him. This dynamic would change late in the year. Also of note is that both, both of the Nicholson titles had name changes. More Fun, which had started out in 1935 as New Fun, had been titled More Fun Comics on the cover since issue 7. It was titled Just More Fun without the comics in the Indicia. New Comics began displaying the title New Adventure Comics on covers beginning with issue 12. However, the Indicia still carried the name New Comics. In the May 1937 issues, of both titles, the Indicia titles were updated to match the covers. More Fun officially became More Fun Comics with issue 20. New Comics officially became New Adventure Comics with number 16. I say officially because I consider the Indicia to be the official titles. Other sources may see things differently. In addition to the three main titles, National Allied released a compilation book entitled New Book of Comics at the end of 1936. This book was similar to the Big Book of Fun Comics, which came out near the end of 1935. However, the physical dimensions of the book were smaller. Big Book had been tabloid-sized like New Fun, while New Book of Comics was standard Golden Age size. It also had twice the page count as its predecessor, 96 pages instead of just 48. The book consisted entirely of reprinted material from New Comics number 1 through 3, both of the Siegel and Schuster strips from More Fun number 9, Dr. Occult and Henry Duvall, were also included. It was first advertised in More Fun number 17 and New Comics number 12, 
both covered in January 1937. It was sold exclusively through F.W. Woolworth stores. What also makes New Book of Comics number one interesting is that it may be the first ever price variant. Although this issue was ex is extremely rare to begin with, there are two known versions of the cover. One version has no price printed on it. The earlier Big Book of Comics uh, also had no printed price. Another version of New Comics number one exists with a 10 cent price printed on the cover. Four months after the initial advertisements for the issue, another set of ads appeared in books cover dated May 1937. Morphin number 21, New Adventure number 16, and Detective Comics number 4. Based on this, I would hazard a guess that the original print run sold out and a second printing was issued months later. I speculate that this was the, a second printing and that was the one that was advertised in the May issues. And it may have been the one that was printed with the cover, uh, with a price on the cover. This conclusion is based solely on circumstantial evidence, so it's not really proof, but it's certainly a theory. A second volume of New Book of Comics was released in 1938. This one featured selected reprints from Morphin number 15 and 16 and New Comics number 11. The book itself had no indicia and no date appears anywhere on the book. The only real evidence pertaining to when the second volume was released is that one of the ads mentions Action Comics. That means at the earliest it came out in the spring of 1938 when Action Comics number one hit the stands. Compared to the first two years of publishing at National, 1937 was far less volatile in terms of content. The features in each issue were far more stable and there was far less artist turnover. Perhaps Wheeler Nicholson was able to meet his financial obligations to artists more regularly after partnering with Donenfeld. It's also probable that there were now enough quality artists working for Nicholson that he no longer had to seek out material from new artists. The length of features also began to grow. Most of the regular adventure strips were at least four pages per issue. Slam Bradley's 13 pages per issue in Detective was the longest. Higher page counts per feature meant fewer features per issue and therefore fewer creators needed. I think 1935 and 1936 were focused on getting material out the door. Creatively, it seems that anything goes was the motto. By 1937, though, they were starting to figure out what was working. The company started to capitalize on that formula. As a result, I think creatively this year was far more stable. That's not to say that sales were crazy high. Nicholson was still struggling financially. Other publishers were trying out comic books too. When Nicholson first entered the marketplace in 1935, his only competition for comic books was Famous Funnies, published by Eastern Color. By 1937, Dell, David McKay, and United Features all had entered the marketplace with newspaper strip reprints in comic book form, not original material. Former Nicholson employees John Mann and Bill Cook formed the Comic Magazine Company, which also was printing new material. One of their financial backers, Everett Busy Arnold, started his own company in 1937 with the publication of Feature Funnies. This company would go on to be known as Quality Comics. There was certainly interest in comic books at this time, 
but they might have ended up as just a fad if someone didn't catch lightning in a bottle. That would come the following year with the discovery of a breakout superstar. But my coverage of his debut will have to wait at least one more episode. Although 1937 saw the debut of very few artists at National Detective, the focus of this episode will be on those new creators and their work. The one creator with the biggest immediate impact got his start in More Fun Comics number 21, cover dated June 1937. John Ellie Jr. was born in New York in 1913. He was better known by his middle name William, often shortened to Will or Bill. After attending school, art school in Brooklyn, Bill Ellie became a pulp illustrator in 1936. He worked on several pulps published by Harry Donenfeld, including titles like Spicy Adventure Stories. This connection to Donenfeld is probably what brought him into comics. In those comics, Ellie used the pen name Will Georgie. He immediately became a DC workhorse. Ellie took over existing strips, Jack Woods and Sandra of the Secret Service from W.C. Brigham. He also started a new strip of his own called Johnny Law. But that was just in more fun comics. In New Adventure Comics, he inherited the Dale Daring strip and introduced Nadir Master of Magic. He wasn't done yet. Beginning in Detective Comics number 5, he created Larry Steele, Private Detective. The following year, he added Scoop Scanlon, a feature debuting in Action Comics. Clearly, Ellie was capable of producing a large number of pages each month. Ellie left DC in 1939 and worked for a few other publishers, primarily Dell. In 1942, he took over the popular Green Hornet newspaper daily strip. In the early 1950s, Ellie returned to DC to work on titles such as Gangbusters, House of Mystery, and Tales of the Unexpected. During the Silver Age, he was one of the primary artists working on Rip Hunter Time Master. He retired from comics in the mid-1960s. Ellie passed away in 1993. While Ellie may have been able to produce a decent volume of work, I find his art style to be quite muddy. This is no more evident than on the Jack Woods adventure which begins in More Fun number 18. The story begins with Jack, our cowboy hero, returning to Texas from an adventure in Mexico. I covered this serialized adventure in my very first episode. The story takes place in the town of Red Hill, where a scoundrel named Val Stanton is anxious to get his hands on the lands of Mrs. Harkins. When she refuses to sell, Stanton burns down her barn. Then Jack arrives. He delivers to her a half a map to a gold mine located somewhere on the Harkins property. Stanton has the other half, which is his motive for getting the land. Jack goes undercover and joins Stanton's gang. He learns the location of the mine and tells Harkins to barricade the entrance. Jack then helps the woman and her friends defend the mine from Stanton, who aims to take it by force. After a shootout in the mine, Jack brings a posse and arrests Stanton. We learn in this story that Jack is a Texas Ranger. The first three chapters of this serial are drawn by Brigham. He had a very clean style and his art was quite detailed. Ellie takes over with issue 21 and immediately things go downhill. The detail work just isn't there. The faces are very rough, and the backgrounds are very dark. For the scenes in the mine, I suppose that's appropriate. 
but it looks all very sketchy to me. Ellie's figure work is his best asset. Most of the poses and bodies look good. There are some exceptions, though. On one page in the final chapter, Jack's neck looks so stretched out, he could double for Ralph Dibney. While the art itself wasn't great, the storytelling was good. I think I've read or seen t a ton of this type of story. I think the secret gold mine was cliché even in 1937. However, the pacing of the story and use of visuals was far better than most stories from this time period. Beginning in More Fun Comics number 24, Ellie started using his own name, Will Ellie, instead of Will Georgie. That issue begins a three-part adventure involving a trio of bank robbers, Papa Benson, Slug Malone, and Dick Healy. The last of this group is trying to lead a straight life, but the other two pin him for a murder of a night watchman. Dick is caught by Jack, but he manages to escape. In part two, Dick's last name changes suddenly from Healy to Riley. That isn't the first time for this strip that a character's name would change. In Jack's first adventures, characters suddenly change names and motivations in mid-story. In any case, when Jack finds Dick working in a diner, he takes him in again. This time, the kid tells Jack who the other men were and helps in their capture. Ellie's art both improves and degrades over the course of this story. There are times when it's much cleaner, but at the same time, some of the figure work is not as good. Ma Nelson, a woman responsible for hiding the crooks, looks quite strange as depicted by Ellie. She's obviously a stocky woman, but in one panel her entire body looks distorted. This short adventure was the most urban of Jack's adventures. The crooks used cars instead of horses. In his next adventure, Jack was back to the country taking on a group of masked bandits. With issue number 28, the strip changed from color to black and white. Remember, these early comics were a mix of color and black and white strips. As it did with several artists, I think the lack of color actually helped the artwork. Poor coloring and printing techniques during this time hurt much of the artwork being published. Ellie continued on the Jack Woods strip through issue number 32, cover dated June 1938. Artist Jim Chambers would take over from there. I'll cover the Jack Woods stories drawn by Chambers in a future episode. Ellie drew more than just Jack Woods. He also took over Sondra of the Secret Service from W.C. Brigham. I've covered some of Sondra's early adventures in a previous episode. Ellie takes over in the middle of a storyline which started in More Fun number 19. Sondra, an international secret agent, is returning to America from her adventures in a fictional country of Gavonia aboard an ocean liner. She encounters a Respian man who wants revenge for her actions against his country. The man and his partner attack Sandra. Another passenger named Michael comes to her aid. During the fight, Sandra and Michael are both thrown overboard. Before the ship speeds out of sight, it explodes. The ship was destroyed by a submarine commanded by Captain Snag, a mercenary working for an international munitions ring. He has been sinking American ships in order to start a war, where his employers will profit from selling munitions to both sides. The submarine attack on U.S. ships foreshadows the real-world attacks that would come from Nazi U-boats that would follow in just a few years. The first Nazi U-boat was launched in 1936 in open defiance of the Treaty of Versailles, which forbade Germany from maintaining submarines. 
Sandra and Michael are taken to the ring's island base and introduced to the leader of the group, the Brain. He is depicted wearing a hooded red cloak from head to toe. During her captivity, Sandra is able to get a message to the U.S. Marines who torpedo the island and rescue Sandra. As with the Jack Wood story, the transition between Brigham's art and Ellie's is drastic. Ellie's work wasn't as muddy here as it was on Jack Wood's, but at the same time, there are some wonky panels. One panel in Morphin number 24 shows a close-up of Michael's face, where he actually resembles Hector Hammond with a giant forehead. I did like this story. The next one was a two-part story involving several murders using poison gas. It was filled with large chunks of exposition and not nearly as interesting. Sandra's role in that story is very passive. She doesn't even capture the killer. A man with a flimsy revenge story kills him instead. We do learn that Sandra is also known as Agent 37 and that she reports to a man named Ames. We also find out that Sandra's last name is McLean. Sandra takes a vacation to Florida in More Fun Comics number 28 and is reunited with Michael, who we are now told is a reporter. They work together to solve a case of stolen jewels. Sandra takes a more active role in the four-part tale. Sandra makes it to Florida in More Fun number 32. When she witnesses a kidnapping, she follows the crooks to a riverboat. The gangsters spot her and ch a chase ensues. Later, the kidnapped victim double-crosses the crooks and kills some of them with poison gas. However, this tale was never finished. Sandra's adventures abruptly end in More Fun Comics number 35, cover dated September 1938. With the exception of a couple of reprints in Double Action Comics number 2 and Bingo Comics, DC's first ever female star, Sandra McLean, has not been seen again. More Fun Comics number 21 featured not only Ellie's first work on Jack Woods and Sandra, but he also created a brand new feature called Johnny Law. Johnny was a beat cop on the Lower East Side of New York. In his first adventure, Johnny rescues an orphan boy named Tim from a tenement fire. He is then promoted to plainclothes detective to investigate the fire. He catches the firebug in the end. During the course of the story, he also agrees to provide a home for Tim, the orphan. The artwork on this initial four-part story was slightly better than Ellie's work on Jack and Sandra. It wasn't great, but it was pretty consistent and told the story very well. The story itself was detailed and contained many aspects of actual police work including looking for clues, tailing suspects, and checking fingerprints. This story would have worked pretty well as an episode of a pr police procedural drama like CSI. The next Johnny Law story, begi which begins in Morphun number 25, starts with a murder. The killer is caught immediately, but he claims snakes are chasing him. When doctors examine him, they determine that he is a victim of marijuana. That's right, he was high and shot his girlfriend. Johnny tells his chief, We must educate youth concerning this stuff. Tell them the truth about it so that they can't be led on some peddler's lies. Clearly the controversy and propaganda from both sides over the use of marijuana has been going on for a long time. Johnny puts his new pal Tim to use to attract the dope dealers. He and the rest of the police force move in to round up the gang. The leader of the crooks, Donati, escapes and it takes a couple more issues before Johnny catches him too. Compared to the first adventure, this one was less of a detective story and had more action. 
Bill Ellie also created another detective named Larry Steele. Unlike Johnny Law, who worked for the police, Larry was a private detective. He made his debut in Detective Comics number 5, cover dated July 1937. The first Larry Steele adventure, which is a continuing serial lasting through issue number 9, involves the kidnapping of several celebrities. Larry's own father, a noted psychologist, is one of the victims. The case covers the, co the country from Los Angeles to New York and involves plane crashes and car chases. Near the end of the story, the kidnapper is revealed as Dark Dr. Sarkov, who intends to perform an operation which will utilize parts of each victim for the purpose of constructing the perfect man. Larry and government agent Hatch derail the scientist's plan and rescue the victims. Of all the stories by Bill Ellie, this is by far the worst. The story was completely ridiculous and the art was just plain bad. Both of these things did improve, if only slightly, in the next three-part story, which ran through Detective Comics number 12. That story involves Larry protecting his wealthy young friend James Wilkes, who has built up a gambling debt to racket boss Nick Orsatti. Larry winds up shooting Orsatti in self-defense. He takes a couple of bullets of his own and lands in the hospital at the end of the case. Detective Comics number 12 had two Larry Steele stories, the end of the Orzati case, and the beginning of another three-part tale. In that one, Larry poses as a family butler to protect Nancy Jenks, who is the target of an extortion racket. Larry plans to catch the crooks during the payoff, but they kidnap Nancy instead. Larry carjacks a motorist to follow them. He then leads the police to the crooks' hideout. Both the kidnappers are shot to death, but Larry succeeds in rescuing Nancy. This was standard Golden Age cops and robbers material. It wasn't interesting to me, and I found it hard to get through. Larry's adventures continued in Detective for several years, ending in number 63, cover dated May 1942. Ellie drew the strip through issue 30 before handing it off to other artists. Who was the first of DC's magician heroes? Was it Sargon the Sorcerer? Nope. Was it Zatara who debuted alongside Superman in action number one? Wrong again. Okay, technically Russell Cole's Goofo the Great was a magician, but his strip was essentially a humor feature. The first magician adventurer at DC was Nadir, Master of Magic, another Bill Ellie strip which debuted in New Adventure Comics number 17. Of course, all comic book magicians can lay some of their inspiration back to Lee Falk's Mandrake, who debuted in 1934. But while Zatara copied Mandrake's signature top hat and tails, Sargon's Swami-inspired turban was also the signature look of Nadir. The first Nadir story starts with a long text introduction of the character. Before we begin this strange adventure of our mysterious young wanderer, let us give you a few details concerning him and his past. Nadir is in truth a prince of India, but for reasons of his own he chooses to ignore his title. Because of a tragedy in his early life which resulted in the death of his father and mother, he has devoted his life to the elimination of crime. 
being wealthy and well-educated both in modern ways of the Western world and the many long-forgotten secrets of the Far East, he is able to carry on his untiring and deadly prosecution of crime wherever he chooses. As we first meet him, he is just about to retire after finishing a game of chess with his lifelong servant and able assistant, Arcot. They are living at present in a well-furnished penthouse in the West 80s of New York City. It is now about 11 o'clock in the evening. Whew. That was a long and quite unnecessary introduction. I'd rather be shown who Nadir is rather than being told through a big block of exposition. It's bad enough when books do this, but in comics it's just awful. In any case, we eventually learn that Nadir gets his, most of his power from a magic ring. This gives him hypnotic abilities. He also uses a crystal ball that can display helpful images, but only at 3 o'clock in the morning. The first Nadir adventure has him chasing the Pearl of the Bleeding Heart, which has been stolen from Sir Thomas Ellsworth. The pearl passes from the hand of the original thief, Henry Dupre, to his assistant, Job, who murders his boss. This pattern is repeated again when Job is murdered by the sh a ship captain taking him to Cuba. The captain is murdered by a fence named Sammy. This is when Nadir finally catches up. He takes possession of the pearl and escapes from Sammy and his men. He then returns the pearl to Ellsworth in New Adventure Comics number 27. A much shorter two-part story follows. It involves a stage producer who uses hypnotism in an attempt to kill his star actress, Marion Carver, after she spurns his advances. A final Nadir story appears in New Adventure Comics number 30. It features Nadir in the South Seas going after pirates. At the end of the, of the four-page episode, Nadir is knocked unconscious by the pirates. It promises that the story is... To be continued. Did Nadir survive? Well, his strip didn't. Nadir has not been seen since, so I'm going to assume the pirates just killed him. Actually, these Nadir stories were pretty decent. Far better than Larry Steele. I found the story to be rather engaging. The art was just okay, and more or less consistent with Ellie's work on other features. The last of Bill Ellie's early strips was Dale Daring. This feature got off to a rough start in New Comics number 4 under the direction of another artist. The first story was abandoned without a conclusion in New Comics number 8. Dale was back in a new story beginning in New Comics number 11. In this one, Dale is visiting China with her father. Mr. Daring decides to explore the nearby mountains without Dale and is captured by a rebel leader, General Sin Lee. Sin Lee wants to know the location of a secret weapons cache and tries to torture Mr. Daring for the information. Dale gets help from the U.S. Marine Captain Brewster and his native guide Ollie. The trio tracks Sin Lee to the Valley of the Lost Ones. They then rescue Mr. Daring and take up defensive position in Sin Lee's armory. Brewster calls the Marines for help. When they arrive, Sin Lee's rebel army surrenders. This adventure was just okay. Dale herself doesn't do much. Brewster is the one that does most of the fighting, and Ollie performs the best bit of rescuing. I can't say it was particularly entertaining. The publication of this strip was inconsistent, too. The first chapter appeared in New Comics number 11, with art by Alex Lovey. 
The second chapter was in number 13. It was most likely drawn by Levy also, though it wasn't signed. The first Ellie chapter appeared in number 16 after a two-issue break. The story continues through number 22. Dale's further adventures continued through Adventure Comics number 37, all under the direction of Ellie. As I mentioned, the first two chapters of this adventure were drawn by Alex Lovey, an artist I mentioned back in episode 8. He was another new artist of 1937. In addition to Dale Daring and his work on Slim and Tex from episode 8, Lovey also drew a strip named Hope Hazard G-Woman. Hope first appeared in Detective Comics number 3 in a six-page adventure entitled The Airmail Mystery. Hope Hazard is dispatched by the FBI to investigate the disappearance of three planes carrying registered mail. She tags along on the next plane piloted by Bill Littlejohn. When flying over a remote area, the plane engines shut down. Bill is able to make a daring landing. Hope and Bill then meet a group of men led by Xavier, ruler of the underworld. Xavier reminds me of Captain Marvel's foe, King Cole. He's a fat, bearded, shirtless man. One of the men reveals that it was a Z-ray which brought down the planes. Hope and Bill try to avoid capture in the mountain caves. The adventure ends in mid-story. It claims that it will be continued, but as frequently happened with these early serials, it never was. That wasn't it for Hope Hazard G-Woman. Another strip, simply called G-Woman, appeared in New Adventure Comics number 22. This one didn't feature Hope. It starred June Justice, alias Operator 23, whom we are told is the only member of the United States Bureau of Investigation. She looks just like Hope Hazard with short blonde hair. This nine-page strip was drawn by another artist who didn't sign it. I can't identify the artist, but it definitely isn't lovey. What is unusual about it is that the panels are quite large. Most pages have just three panels. There were also two full-page spreads. That's very unusual for this time period. The story shows June using the alias Helen Mazik as she tracks down a wanted fugitive, Jake Schiller. This story is extremely simplistic, with June getting the upper hand on the crooks by kicking one of them in the shins. More Fun number 30 had yet another version of Hope Hazard drawn by a third artist, whom I'm also not able to identify. In this one, Hope doesn't work for the FBI. Instead, she's the daughter of an ex-Secret Service agent. They move into a new house neighboring that of jewel thief Serge Raskov. Hope assists in Raskov's capture and recovers the famous Dekov diamond. So there were three separate strips featuring blonde female investigators, all linked through Hope Hazard G-Woman. Truthfully, all of these female strips, Dale Daring, Sandra of the Secret Service, and all three versions of Hope Hazard, are essentially interchangeable. The last piece of work Alex Lovey contributed at National was a two-page strip featuring Lieutenant Leeds in Morphine Number 20. Leeds works for the U.S. Army Intelligence and is dispatched to the Panama Canal when evidence surfaces about a foreign power attempting to bomb the canal. He decides to look over the cargo aboard the ship taking him to the canal and discovers a bomb. How convenient! Leeds uses a seaplane to carry the bomb away from the ship and the canal. 
He then bails out while the bomb explodes in the air. This story had very competent artwork by Lovey. The seaplane was particularly nice, but the story was just hokey. The discovery and disposal of the bomb was far too easy to elicit any excitement from reading it. Next up, Ed Winiarski was a young artist who got his start at National and New Comics number 14, working on a strip called Jungle Fever. The story featured two ex-Marines, Red Riley and Curly Morgan. Red was a dark-haired man in a white suit and tie. Curly was blonde and wore a dark coat and a bow tie. Although they were partners, Curly seemed to be the goofy sidekick, while Red was portrayed as the leading man. The two decide to help Jim Holloway in on his tropical island plantation. On the way there, they become the targets of an assassin, get involved in a mutiny, and stop a black man on an island from being whipped. This strip is full of racist dialogue, including such lines as, White man make bad enemy, Zarnoff much dangerous, him seek revenge, me like to be slave to white man. Wow, that is about as offensive as you can be. The strip ran three issues in New Adventure before continuing in More Fun number 22. Thankfully, it ended in mid-story without the main characters ever reaching their destination. Winiarski also drew the short-lived Mr. Chang strip, which ran in even-numbered issues of Detective Comics from issue number 2 through number 6. The first story, Mr. Chang and the Narcotic Ring, shows Inspector Daniels calling in Mr. Chang, a master sleuth, for help. Chang is a wealthy Asian man whose hobby is the science of criminology. As with Jungle Fever, the racism displayed in this story is undeniable. Chang and the other Asian characters are colored yellow and speak in stereotypical dialects. Racial slurs are also used such as, Okay, chink, here's your snow. Thankfully, only the first story is in color. The later two are printed in black and white, so I don't have to see the yellow coloring. This racism was very common for the time period in which the stories were originally published. As a modern reader, it's hard to read them without cringing, but I'm sure most people at the time passed over it without a second thought. As for the story, Chang is clearly a Charlie Chan knockoff. Chan was created in the novels of Earl Biggers and was the star of several movies beginning in 1926. DC would eventually publish a short run of official Charlie Chan comics entitled The New Adventures of Charlie Chan in the 1950s. Chang solves the narcotic case with the help of his servant Wu. In The Bloody Will from Detective Comics number 4, he solves a case involving a group of heirs who are being murdered for their fortunes, a classic, albeit cliched, plot. Finally, Detective Comics number 6 features Mr. Chang and the Mad Scientist. The scientist is Hugo von Gratz, who, is, who has been involving motorists in accidents, then draining their bodies of blood for ex his experiments. Winiarski's artwork is passable by Golden Age standards, but for the most part I found it weak. There are a couple of nice panels, such as the man Chang shoots in Detective Comics number 2, the Grim Reaper who was depicted on the splash panel in number 4, and the scientist's face on page 3 of the final story. Winiarski moved on to create newer, longer-lasting features in 1938, including Red Logan and Captain Desmo.
He stayed at DC until 1941. He then went to work for Timely, mostly drawing funny animals in the 1940s and Marvel-style horror and monster stories for Atlas in the 1950s. Another feature, Guilty of Period Racism, debuted in New Comics number 14 under the title Detective Sergeant Carey of the Chinatown Squad. Carey, a plainclothes police detective, and his rotund partner Sleepy are sent to investigate a murder at number 13, Lane of the Thousand Bleeding Dragons. They find the victim, Lee Hung, an importer at the address. Sleepy comments, It's a waste of time investigating these Chinatown murders. You can't make these chinks talk. Yet again, the racial slurs of the time period are used very casually here. Carrie and his partner are soon captured by the fortune forces of Sin Fu and locked in a basement cell. They are rescued by a white girl who is being held for ransom. As the serial continues, the trio is caught again and lowered into a well to drown. The arrival of additional police led by Captain Dart causes Sin Fu to pull them out of the well. He grabs the girl and tries to escape the building while Carrie and Sleepy are locked in a room filled with poison gas. Dart reaches them before they die, but Sin Fu does make good on his escape. At headquarters, Carrie learns that the girl was Lola Manners, the daughter of a rich arms manufacturer. Sin Fu has been supplying his army with weapons in an attempt to overthrow the Chinese government. Carrie and Sleepy are sent to Shanghai to assist the Chinese authorities. Now wait a minute, why would a city homicide detective be sent to China on a case involving international arms dealing and kidnapping? Wouldn't this be handled by the federal and international authorities? I guess readers weren't supposed to question things like that. The strip writers were just spinning the story from issue to issue to move the serial along. Obviously, real-world logic was not a priority. Another breakdown of the story occurs between New Adventure number 23 and number 24. This error comes from the fact that at least one chapter of the story was never printed. The story, which began in number 14, ran in two-page installments. However, issues 18, 21, 22, and 25 did not contain a Detective Sergeant Carey chapter. Issue number 23 ends with a, trio, with a trip on to Shanghai, but number 24 picks up in the home of Chinese agent Li Fun, where Carrie, Sleepy, and Fun are under attack by the forces of Sin Fu. From reading each chapter, it's clear that there's a break in the story and it wasn't intentional. There were several pages actually missing. I saw this same kind of omission in other features from this time period. What's even odder is that the break comes between two issues in which the feature did appear consecutively instead of between issues where the feature did not appear at all. Clearly the editor was asleep at the wheel. After the interruption of the story, we see that one of Fun's companions is Lee Hung. He was the murder victim from the beginning of the story. The missing pages may explain how, is he, how he is alive, but I'll never know for sure. Carrie, Sleepy, and Lee Fun escape the house and make their way to a Chinese junk and fight bandits at sea. Sleepy discovers a machine gun. When the bandits see it, they run away, not realizing that the gun is rusty and out of ammunition. The heroes finally make it to Sin Fu's hideout and rescue the girl at the conclusion of New Adventure Comics number 27. 
As the strip progressed, the racist dialogue would be toned down and eliminated. I don't know if this was a conscious decision by the writer or not, only that the first three chapters of the serial were in color, so the yellow coloring of the Asian skin was also removed. Detective Sergeant Carey was drawn by Joe Donahoe, another new artist at National. He may have also written this strip. I don't know much about his life. The only feature he did for National was this one, which had a healthy run. After New Adventure Comics number 28, Carey's adventures moved to more fun comics with issue number 35, and continued through number 72, dated October 1941. The feature was squeezed out of more fun to make room for Aquaman and Green Arrow, uh, a couple minor characters, both of whom debuted in More Fun number 73. Donahoe was the only artist on the strip. He disappears for a couple of years, perhaps due to World War II service? I don't know. Then he res resurfaces for a couple of years of work at Funnies Incorporated. Funnies Incorporated was an art service founded by National's first editor, Lloyd Jackett. These services or studios were fairly common in the early days of comics. They were not publishers themselves, but instead produced comic art and stories for a number of different companies. Will Eisner and Jerry Iger had a similar shop. So did Harry Chesler. The first comics produced by Funny Inks, by Funny's Inc. included Motion Picture Comics Weekly, which features the first appearance of a character named The Submariner, drawn by Bill Everett. They would go on to produce most of the content from Marvel Comics No. 1 in 1939. Of course, this was years before Donahoe worked for them. His biggest contributions came in the form of two features published by Novelty Press, The Cadet and Fearless Fellers. Overall, I found the Sergeant Carey stories to be rather bland in both story and art. There was nothing particularly original in the initial offering. I'm hoping for better stories in future issues of, of More Fun, and I'll be reading those for a future episode. There must be some reason the feature lasted as long as it did, but I can't see it from these early episodes. Marty McCann, Champion of the Navy, was a short-lived strip which ran from More Fun Comics number 23 through number 28. Marty is a Navy man out on shore leave. He visits a local gym and meets heavyweight contender K.O. Griffin. After besting Griffin in the ring, Marty is approached by a movie producer for a film role with boxing champ Jeff Lewis. Marty knocks him out too. Boxing promoter Pete Marco wants Marty to fight Gorilla Green next. Marty wins again after Green quits the fight. Marco is angry and punches Green. Marty punches Marco back. The promoter wants to get even, so he arranges to frame Marty for murder during his next match with Boris the Russian wrestler. Marty wins again, but this time there is no more matches because the feature is discontinued. Marty McCann's adventures were drawn by Ed Cronin, an artist with a clean but cartoonish style. This was Cronin's only DC work, but he went on to have a long career in comics, mostly as an editor. Late in 1937, Cronin helped Busy Arnold launch Quality Comics, where he served as editor until 1942. Cronin also kept busy on the drawing board by, contri by contributing several strips to feature funnies and other quality titles. Cronin would then move to Hillman Comics, where he guided strips like Airboy and The Heap. 
Among the creators who worked under Cronin at Hillman were Gil Kane, Carmen Infantino, and Bob Haney, all three of which had long careers at DC. When Hillman closed up shop in the early 1950s, Cronin retired and left the world of comics behind. A few new creators from 1937 only stuck around for a proverbial cup of coffee. One such creator was Stan Babcock, who did a single eight-page story entitled Boomerang Jones, which appeared in New Adventure Comics number 24. The title character is a riverboat captain in the jungles of Borneo. He is assisted by Mungo, a shirtless native wearing a do-rag and large hoop earrings. The duo gives a ride to an explorer who is bound for Cannibal Falls. Upon reaching their destination, they learn that the explorer is part of a gang of kidnappers. They have taken a girl named Mary hostage. Boomerang assists in her rescue and in defeating the gang. What stands out about this story is the art. It's very dynamic. Many of the panels are large and not obscured by unneeded captions or exposition. One panel shows Jones swinging a rifle through the air and clobbering one of the crooks in the head with the gunstock. In the foreground, Mungo has another man held by the throat with his knife prepared to descend into the man's chest. In some ways, this panel reminds me of Joe Schuster's work on Slam Bradley. This is one of my favorite short-lived features. It's a shame that it also represents the only known comics work for Babcock. I can find no real information on him or his career other than the references to this story. I would definitely like to have seen more from him. Another one-and-done artist was Leroy Smith, who drew the two-page gag strip Loopy in New Comics number 12. The strip features the title character Loopy, a young man wearing a sloppy necktie. He wants to play a trick on his friend Joe, so he purchases one exploding cigar and one regular cigar. He gives one to Joe, then waits for it to explode. He gives the other to Officer Kelly, a policeman who is passing by. Joe's cigar doesn't explode, but Kelly's does. Loopy clearly mixed them up. The last panel shows Loopy behind bars in the city jail. The strip was not terribly funny, but it wasn't awful. I feel the same way about the art. For some reason, it reminded me of Dennis the Menace. I had the same problem finding information on Leroy Smith that I did on Stan Babcock. This is the only comic I can find him associated with. Pete D'Angelo was another short-tenured humor artist. His strip, Mail Order Murphy, made a, made a pair of two-page appearances. The first was in Detective Comics number 2, the last in New Adventure Comics number 18. Murphy is a goofy-looking fellow who orders a G-Man kit in the mail. He dons a Sherlock Holmes-style hat and uses the gadgets from the kit to look and search the city. It's not clear what he's looking for exactly, but he finds a fresh-baked pie cooling in the window of someone's house. A cop sees him take the pie, and he is thrown in jail. In the second strip, Murphy seeks an, a, a kidnapping victim. He finds a pencil at the scene of the crime and traces it back to the owner. When he accuses the man of the kidnapping, he lands in jail again. The accused man was the police commissioner. The first strip is entirely without dialogue. The second one only has dialogue in a couple of panels. The art is responsible for carrying the gags. While the art is fair for humor, it isn't anything special. 
D'Angelo created another humor strip, Hap the Sap, which made two appearances in More Fun number 14 and 21. The first of these, like Mail Order Murphy, was completely without dialogue or captions. It shows Hap, the main character, buying an electric razor. When the fuse blows at his house, he takes the razor to the subway and plugs it into a light socket on one of the trains. The second and final Hap the Sap strip is chock full of dialogue. In this one, Hap is a door-to-door -door salesman selling vacuum cleaners. He is turned away repeatedly until he finds a customer who finally allows him to perform a demonstration. After practically cleaning her whole house and fixing her electricity, he thinks he has made a sale. However, the woman tells him that she just bought a vacuum at the store yesterday and she thought he was the delivery man. Hap gives up the job in disgust. I suppose I'd have to say that the last strip was the only one I found to be the slightest bit funny. D'Angelo's only other work for National was the final P. Lion and Osa strip in More Fun Comics number 20. The only in other information I can find on D'Angelo beyond these three strips was in association with Famous Studios in 1944. Famous was the animation division of Paramount, founded in 1942. During their early years, they produced both Popeye and Superman cartoons, which they inherited from the Fleischer studio. They also produced Little Lulu. I don't know which, if any, of these features D'Angelo worked on. Bob Hermans was an artist who produced a few humorous filler strips. One called Sinker appeared in three issues of New Adventure. Sinker was a young boy whose grandfather worked at the zoo. In the four single-page gags, Sinker breaks a gorilla out of the zoo to work as an organ grinder monkey, thinks the spots on a giraffe are the measles, uses a mouse as, as bait to catch a catfish, and feeds soap to an elephant to wash its insides. Hermans also drew the strip Busty, which appeared in New Adventure number 17. It involves a man getting thrown in jail for picking flowers. This is now the fourth different humor strip which ends with the main character in jail that I've covered today. I guess it was a popular theme. Hermans didn't have any other comic book credits that I know about. He may have gone on to be a political cartoonist for newspapers. I found evidence of a Bob Hermans who did such artwork in Michigan. However, I could not confirm that this was the same man who drew Sinker and Busty. A two-page humor strip in More Fun number 26 featured the work of another one-hit wonder. The strip was called Stubby, who is aboard a boat with a movie camera. As his friend Steve spends hours reeling in a huge swordfish, Stubby uses the camera to capture the action. Steve is exhausted when he finally gets the giant fish aboard the boat. Stubby then asks him to do it all over again because he forgot to load film into the camera the first time. This joke is probably as old as the first camera and has been repeated in every bad sitcom for decades. <sighs> Still, the art is actually pretty good as humor strips go. The byline on this strip is Byron Fairbanks. I can find no other credits or information on Byron. However, Jerry Bales in his Who's Who claims that Byron Fairbanks was a pseudonym for Barbara Fairbanks who wrote some text stories for, for DC in the early 1950s. How Jerry came across this connection, I don't know. I can find no other evidence to support the claim that this was done by the woman who wrote those text stories. Some other sources do parrot the information from Bales. I just don't see the connection. 
Since I can't find any information on Barbara either, I'd chalk it up to an unsolved mystery, and not even an intriguing one. The last one of the new one-shot artists was Alexander Nikitin, who drew a four-page story, Hooves of the Tartar Horde, in More Fun Comics number 30. It's hard for me to evaluate this story because the photo quality on the microfiche I'm reading it on is very poor. Both the art and the text are blurry. I did discover that, the features, that it features Alan de Beaufort, a character who also appeared in a story in New Comics number 1. The story was written by DC founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson and was to be continued, but it never was. The last of the new guys from 1937 had far more than that proverbial cup of coffee at DC. He was one of the most prolific creators in the history of the company. He was also responsible for the creation of characters and ideas that formed the center of the DC universe for more than 50 years. Arguably, his influence is felt even in the comics of today. That man's name was Gardner Fox. Fox was born in 1911 and grew up with a passion for reading, including science fiction tales by Edgar Rice Burroughs. As Fox entered adulthood, he pursued a career in law, earning his degree from St. John's. However, the Great Depression made him seek employment in other fields, including writing. National Allied editor Vin Sullivan put Fox to work writing scripts for Speed Saunders beginning in 1937. In this, in this modern day, story credits are printed in each issue. Joe plotted the story, Bill scripted it, Bob provided layouts, Jim penciled it, John and Ted inked it, Chris lettered it, Mark colored it, Fred edited it, Carl assistant edited it, Pete brought a cup of coffee to Fred, Steve's, Steve is Pete's neighbor, and so on and so on. Sometimes it feels like the rolling credits at the end of a movie. Do I really know, need to know who the assistant intern was? This extreme overcrediting hasn't always been the case. It is a common misconception that comics uh, ha did not have credits until Marvel started printing them in the 1960s. That isn't true. Early comics of the 1930s often had a byline. This was eventually phased out during the 1940s and 1950s until it came back in, in vogue to include credits beginning in the 1960s, through some though some publishers never printed them. These early stories, though, often ha only had artistic credits. The point I'm trying to make is that Gardner Fox's name didn't appear on the Speed Saunders strip. Writers were rarely credited. Jerry Siegel was a rare exception. The earliest reference I've found to Fox's actual name being included was in Flash Comics No. 1, published in 1940. The fact, that, the fact that we know Fox wrote these stories is largely due to the research of comics fandom, the late Jerry Bales in particular, who is widely regarded as the father of fandom. In the 1960s, Bales corresponded not only with editor Julie Schwartz at DC, but with Fox and other writers. Fans of comic history, like myself, owe a great debt to Bales and his cohorts for preserving this information and passing it along to future generations. While Fox's name didn't appear directly on any comics from 1937, one of his pseudonyms did. Detective Comics number 4 features a story entitled The Evil Oak. The story is credited to Paul Dean, which was a pen name for Gardner Fox. 
He wrote several of these tech stories under the name Paul Dean, including Firing Squad Fizzle from New Adventure number 27 and Singapore Sinjing from Action Comics number 6 that following year. During this time period, the tech stories were several pages in length. The Evil Oak, for example, was six pages with spot illustrations by Craig Flessel, the same artist who worked with Fox on Speed Saunders. Prose stories were a regular part of comics into the 1960s before they were largely replaced by letter columns. I think, like most readers, I usually skip them. The main reason I bring them up is to emphasize the fact that Gardner Fox wasn't just a comics writer. He was a prolific prose writer. During the same time he was the writer of stories for DC, he was also writing science fiction stories for the pulps. This writing continued through the 1950s. He eventually became a published novelist also. But to me, Fox's main impact as a writer was on the characters at DC Comics. After getting his start on Speed Saunders, he went on to write some short-lived features like Steve Malone. He then worked on The Adventures of Zatara in Action Comics. In 1939, he wrote the earliest adventures of Wesley Dodds, The Sandman, Fox also contributed several early Batman stories, filling in for one of the character's creators, Bill Finger. Yes, Finger is one of Batman's creators. These were some seminal Batman stories, too, as they introduced the Batarang and the Utility Belt. In addition to helping the early Sandman and Batman stories, Fox also had a hand in the creation of The Flash. He wrote Jay Garrick's first adventures. He also created Hawkman. Four icons of DC's Golden Age line can be traced back to Fox, but the biggest impact Fox had on the Golden Age was in the pages of All-Star Comics. This book featured two characters from each of, DC, of the DC All-American line. For those of you that don't know what All-American was, I'll be discussing that in future episodes. Flash and Hawkman were taken from Flash Comics, the Atom and Green Lantern from All-American, Sandman and Owlman appeared from Adventure Comics, and Dr. Fate and the Spectre appeared in from More Fun. Each of the eight heroes had their own strip in All-Star Comics, but it was Fox who linked them together in All-Star Comics number 3. Instead of eight unrelated stories, he conceived the idea that the eight characters would meet and swap stories. Thus, the Justice Society of America, and, by happenstance, the shared DC Universe, was born. This was all because of Gardner Fox. This impact on comics was significant and great. Any ordinator, any ordinary creator would be proud of these accomplishments. But Fox was no ordinary creator, and he wasn't done yet. As superheroes faded from popularity in the late 1940s, Fox began writing comics of other genres. Westerns, crime, romance. He even spent time at EC writing horror and mystery tales. But by the mid-1950s, the newly established Comics Code had watered down or completely obliterated some genres and companies. Fox continued to write science fiction tales for Julie Schwartz on Mystery in Space and Strange Adventures, and some Western tales such as Pow Wow Smith. When superheroes started to proliferate again, Gardner Fox created Adam Strange in the pages of Showcase, and finally, in Brave and the Bold number 28, Fox reimagined the Justice Society as the Justice League of America alongside artist Mike Sikowski. 
Gardner Fox had created both DC's both of DC's premier superhero teams. Fox was also called upon to write two other superhero revivals, Hawkman and The Atom. By 1961, the prolific Fox was also writing the occasional Flash story, substituting for regular writer John Broom. One such Fox story appeared in Flash number 123, entitled The Flash of Two Worlds. In this story, the new Flash, Barry Allen, met his predecessor, Jay Garrick, the original Flash. It was revealed that Jay existed on a parallel version of Barry's Earth. To Barry, Jay was a comic book character. When he crossed over into Jay's parallel Earth, he found that Jay was real. The two Flashes then began to have a series of team-ups that would last for years. The fact that Jay was a comic character on Barry's Earth was explained by saying that Gardner Fox of Barry's World was able to tune in on Jay's adventures on the other Earth during his sleep and he turned those stories into comic books. So Fox was a character in his own stories. This parallel world concept never went anywhere, though. Oh, wait. Yeah, I guess it did. This story became the foundation of the DC multiverse, where the heroes of the Golden Age existed on Earth-2, and the heroes of DC Silver Age existed on Earth-1. A series of yearly team-ups would follow for the next 25 years, ultimately culminating in some little thing called Crisis on Infinite Earths. Oh yeah, it was Gardner Fox who wrote those early JLA-JSA crossovers in the pages of Justice League. Whew! That's quite a career for one man. Wait, there's more you say? Holy creators, Batman! Yes, there was more. Batman was revamped in 1964 with a new look under the stewardship of editor Julie Schwartz and artist Carmine Infantino. Fox served as one of Julie's primary writers and helped to reinvigorate Batman right before his TV debut. Among the lasting impacts of Fox on the Batman mythos, in this go-around anyway, was the revival of a long-forgotten 1948 Batman foe, the Riddler, and the creation of a new Batgirl, Commissioner Gordon's daughter, Barbara. But even the great comic creators can only last so long, and in 1968, Fox's days at DC were numbered. Not for creative reasons, though, but for business reasons. Fox was, uh, was in this point in his 50s, he, along with many other longtime comic creators, petitioned DC to provide them with health care benefits. DC refused to pay. Fox and many of his generation left the company as a result of this disagreement. The old guard at DC was gone, and to me, there ended the Silver Age. A new wave of creators, many from the fan community, would take up the reins to replace them. Fox ended his career at DC as their second most prolific writer. Only Bob Kaniger wrote more stories for the company. As for Fox, he spent the next several years focusing on his prose writing. He wrote and published several books and short stories. He returned to comics in the early 1970s to write several stories for Marvel, who had started to pass DC as the top publisher in the business. Among the features he wrote at Marvel were Doctor Strange, Dracula, and Doc Savage. Coincidentally, Fox wasn't the only aging DC creator who had a cup of coffee at Marvel during this period. Jerry Siegel and Wayne Boring also worked there but it didn't last. Fox continued to write for other publishers like Warren 
and eventually Eclipse, he was well known over the course of his career as being knowledgeable on a wide variety of subjects, including history and science. This probably made it easy for him to write a variety of topics and succeed as a writer in multiple genres. Fox died on Christmas Eve 1986, just as DC was launching their single post-crisis universe. The multiverse, created by Gardner Fox, was gone, and despite DC's recent attempts to bring it back, it will never be the same. Fox's legacy will be remembered throughout comics. He is one of the founding fathers of superhero comics and deserves a spot on the Mount Rushmore of comics creators. He is a member of the Eisner Award and Jack Kirby Hall of Fames. Modern comics readers may not be aware of Gardner Fox the Man, but they are aware of his characters, the ones he helped create and build. In these characters and concepts, Gardner Fox will always be remembered. That wraps up my coverage of the 1937 freshman class. I'll be back again soon with another episode focusing on the end of the Nicholson era, followed by the debut of A Certain Man in Blue. In the meantime, why not send me some feedback on the show? You made it this far, so I'd like to know what you think. Comments, questions, or criticisms are welcome. The address is dchistory at mikesamazingworld.com. Be sure to join me next time for another episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History.